So has anybody in here heard of dynamic symmetry? Good. Well, this is good. After tonight, you'll have to excuse me. I, uh, three weeks ago, had some major surgery on my jaw, uh, the legacy of an accident, the freak accident I was in two decades ago. Um, and it had some lasting consequences, and I finally bit the bullet and had everything fixed. But now I've got a metal bar in my mouth holding everything for the next four months. So I'm not able to articulate, but I'm retraining myself. Um, last week I was with a client and we were outside her house and we were walking around and I was pointing out to her, I said, Mrs. So-and-so, you've got structural issues on your house. But I've retrained my tongue so now I can say structural, which is an important word in my vocabulary. So, um, so anyways, if every once in a while I start sounding kind of strange, that's, that's why. Uh, and there's a hell of a story behind the accident, but we'll save that for another time. How many of you know what a fractal is, more or less? Good, okay. The idea of self-similarity, the idea that a part of any composition, whether this could be a work of art, it could be a work of biology, it could be a work of architecture or a work of music, or it could be something in the astronomical level, the molecular level, but the idea is that there's a, that there's a whole composed of parts, and there's a very unique resonant quality between the whole and the part. And this has been a, an, one of the animating principles of sacred art and sacred architecture basically since recorded history began. And we find the, the concepts and the techniques spread pretty much throughout the world. Um, this idea that there is a special relationship between the part and the whole, and also the idea that, um, that it's not just between the part and the whole, but that that whole is in turn a part of something even greater. So that idea of sacred art particularly sacred architecture, was that you had a structure or a pattern um, that could act as an intermediary between the human scale and a much larger scale. Because one of the things that the uh, archaic peoples really sought to do was to establish this connection with the cosmos. And we find this embedded in their architecture everywhere, which basically would start out by placing a line on the earth. And that line was described by the motions of the heavenly bodies above. And if that line then was dictated by the patterns of the cosmos, and there was something built along that line, whether it was a temple or even an urban complex, or even just a roadway between two site, sacred sites of pilgrimage, <clears throat> that pathway would then serve to link with a pathway in the sky, in the celestial realm. And so we find that there are examples of temples and temple complexes built that mimic the patterns we already find in the sky. And this is not accidental. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show, let's see, I think this would be the one we want here. Um, I'm going to give you a geometry lesson. And like I said, it starts with just a, a line. And usually you would have cord stretchers that we find pretty much the same techniques repeated over and over again in different cultures. You have a cord stretcher. You establish a sacred center, and usually this was done by a geomancer or somebody who had the ability to detect the, um, 
Maybe we could shut that door, possibly, since I'm not mic'd. Am I mic'd? Hello? Oh, I am mic'd. Where's my... I did bring my stick, in case anybody got unruly. <laughs> um, is my stick down there? It's, uh... Oh, here's my stick. Okay. I feel better now. I have my stick. See, this can be somebody. Or if I see somebody back there sleeping. Okay. So you start with a line. Now you got a picture, but this could be a line on a piece of paper, or it could be a cord stretched from a sacred center to some point, usually on the horizon. And what they were after was finding significant points on the horizon, which could usually be <clears throat> could be the rising or setting point of the sun at an auspicious time of year, such as uh, the solstices or the equinoxes. It could be the rising or setting of the moon um, during its 18.6 year swing uh, between the maximum and minimum, or it could be the rising and setting of a star or a star cluster, such as the Pleiades, um, or the dog star, Sirius, uh, or several other stars that were often chosen for whatever the purpose was. So you picture you've got this sacred center and you stretch the line, and that line marks the position on the horizon where this event is happening that you want to memorialize in this structure, right? You stretch the cord. Now, that gives you the basis for developing all kinds of geometry. And generally, the next thing that was done is once you had the sacred center, once you had that, that post or pole or gnomon or obelisk or whatever in the ground, something vertical, you stretch the line, and you can now draw a circle. Now, if you're if you're doing this on paper, of course, you're using a compass. And I think I do have a compass I brought to show. We make get with if you're interested in a really beautiful, handmade, very functional compass, which we designed in Cameron Cells on the website. Um, it would be in the uh, computer there. Well, we'll find it afterwards, and if anybody's interested, we'll we'll show them. But you all know what a compass is, right? The drawing compass, like that. Um, that Keith was talking about earlier. Okay, so this could be, you have an unmarked straight edge, generally, in, in the um, the old schools, the Pythagorean schools, in the Platonic lodges. Ah, there we go, there, there we go, there's one right there. It's right here. So I, we made these because we couldn't find anything that was really suitable for our purposes. And this, whenever I do classes, we always use these compasses. You can see it works real nice with the bulldog clip. And you can clip a, you know, you can put, clip a gel pen in there, or, or or any kind of any kind of pen you want, obviously, and you can draw circles. We can also make them very big, but this is generally a good size for just drawing up, typically on a uh, an artist pad uh, or an easel. Um, and so, with these two two implements right here, you will see that you can create almost an infinitely complex world of patterns. And that's what they did. They knew these they knew these fundamental principles by which they could start with something very simple and then get into something very complex. So the first thing we do is we draw two circles of the same radius. So you picture this. Always when you're dealing with geometry, keep your numbers as simple as possible. So like if this is a circle here, you know a radius would be from here up to the circumference or from here to here. 
What you can see in this particular drawing is that you have two circles of equal radii and they overlap. And this overlap, you see, would be very simple to do. Once you've got your line, you draw one circle and you simply move your compass over to the circumference of that circle and you draw a second circle. And you get this figure called the vesica piscis, or vessel of the fish, which is a very universally recognized symbol as being having very sacred or special properties. From that, we can begin to develop a whole language of geometry. Um, <clears throat> things that I'll point out to you, if this is one unit, now this could be any unit you want. It could be a foot, it could be a centimeter, a meter, it could be a mile. It could be a yard, it could be a furlong. If this is one unit, then what's the entire width? I, I know I'm requiring you to think now. Three, obviously, right? <clears throat> now, but what is this distance? That's the interesting thing. <clears throat> if I put a rhombus in there, this rhombus has very special properties. First of all, it's composed of two equilateral triangles. So whatever the proportion geometry of an equilateral triangle are, you'll find it built into this particular figure right here. And I should mention that the curved lines are generally particular in, in um, you know, like in Gnostic Christianity and others. Uh, in, in the Hindu religion, you find this. The idea that the vesica, or a very similar shaped idea, is actually an image of the divine feminine. And is actually thought of as being a sort of a universal womb. And which is really, to me as a geometrician, a very interesting way to think of it because it's no exaggeration to say that the entire edifice of geometry emerges out of the vesica. <clears throat> now you'll notice one of the things we've done here is by putting these, and we know these are equilateral triangles, right? Because an equilateral triangle means that all the sides of the triangle are equal, right? Equilateral. <clears throat> We know that this is one unit. We know that this is one unit because it's the radius of the same circle. We know that this is one unit because it's the radius of a circle equal to the other one. So therefore, simple geometric logic, we know that we're looking at an equilateral triangle. All three sides are equal, right? So we have here now a 60 degree angle. And if I do that, we now have a 90 degree angle. And we have some interesting triangles created in the process. I can tell you right now, without necessarily going through the math, that you can calculate this. And you find out that if this is one unit, this is 1.732 dot, dot, dot. What does that mean? That means that the number keeps going without ever repeating. You know what uh, the number pi, right? 3.14159 dot, dot, dot means that it just keeps going and never terminates and never repeats. If I establish this as one unit, that vertical axis is one of those irrational numbers that cannot be expressed by a whole number, 1.732 something. The interesting thing about that is if you take that number, which is irrational, and goes on forever and ever and ever without terminating, without repeating, and then you multiply it times itself, you get three. <laughs> What did you, you thought it was going to be more complicated than that. <laughs> and of course, then by simple geometric steps, we can superimpose a square on there. Um, we can add another circle. We can add more circles. And we find we can get a nice hexagon in there. And you know, a hexagon is composed of six equilateral triangles, isn't it? 
Now, by a very, what used to be a secret process, I'm now revealing it here because it's actually already been revealed. So if you wanted to go dig this up on your own, you could find it. But once you set out these three circles and you've got this basket, here's the way geometry works, especially this kind of geometry. When you do something, things will appear. Points, intersections will appear, right? Once you get those, you can use those to go to the next generation of the pattern. You see what I'm saying? In other words, at each stage, the potency is there to go further to the next stage. So that's what I've done here. I'm going to back out. We're going from here. I'm taking away two circles, leaving it to three, and then I'm using this point and that point, right? So I project this point from here, and I use my straight edge to project that onto the circumference of the circle. I do the same thing here, and I get that point. Now, with those two points, I can go the next step, which is a pentagon. And you see, all I have to then do is since a pentagon is one of the regular polygons, right? So all sides are the same length. So I've already got this length here, don't I? Right, so I use my compass and I strike an arc. I put my center here and I strike an arc up there. So the center there, I strike an arc and it gives me the fifth corner of that pentagon. <coughs> so there, there's the basic shapes, the alphabet, the, the simplest version of the alphabet of sacred geometry right there. A circle, equal to a triangle, a square, and a pentagon. And you'll notice the idea that the regular polygon because all three sides, all the sides of each one are the same length, right? Now let's just, before I do that, this right here is, again, a universal symbol, and it can represent multiple things, right? It can, it can be an image that represents time, or it can be an image that represents space, right? If it's space, what do we got? What, what, what spatially can we put here? Well, north, south, east, and west, obviously, right? So if you were to lay out your line, let's go back to this, we're building a sacred temple. We lay out a line, right? Now we want to get a line that's perpendicular to that. Well, I just showed you how you get that perpendicular. You use the vesica. So you lay out two circles. You can then get a, a secondary line that's perpendicular to your first line, right? Now you use that crossing as a center. You draw a circle, and now you've got this universal symbol of, of time and space. Uh, how, else can, how else can it be... Uh, associated with time. Well, obviously, right? Think about this. Two equinoxes and two solstices. Also during the day, dawn, dusk, midnight, and and um, high noon. So you can, you can attribute each of these things because those are natural quadratures of the circle that nature has given us, right? There's a natural right angle set down, right? Now from that, I can begin to generate more geometries. I can close that. So now we have an inscribed circle. Now, if I take the diagonal of a square, something interesting happens. I told you that the square root of 3, which I introduced you to before, 1.732, that if you square it, you get 3. And it's a it's an irrational number, meaning that the that the temp that the um, the number goes on and on without terminating, without repeating. When you take the diagonal of a square, this was one of the most, right here, was one of the most common 
relationship used in sacred art and architecture uh, was this, the square and its diagonal. I've shown you simple techniques that if you were to try to reduplicate that, like what I just showed you, would be how you could generate a square. Um, there are multiple ways to generate squares, but we'll see several of them. But in this case, I've drawn a square and I've got its diagonal in here. When I put another diagonal in, what happens? I have a point that appears. I have a crossing point right there, which I can now use as a center, and that gives me the inscribed circle inside the square, which has typically been a symbol. Oftentimes, you'll know that if, you're, if you ever studied astrology, you know that the uh, circle with the cross in it is a symbol for the Earth. And it's, it's, it's a, an appropriate symbol for that, because the thing is, is when you're going to lay out a sacred temple, the first thing you do is you lay out this cross on the Earth to point to the cardinal direction. And even if you're not building the temple oriented precisely to those cardinal directions, you're still acutely aware of them and how much you're deviating, because the deviation is significant, symbolically significant. And oftentimes, the deviation is because you're pointing to a star or a, a one of the solstitial, typically solstitial points. You know, if you go out and you look at the horizon, east or west, on uh, the solstices, uh, or you do this, and it's something I highly recommend to people to get into a habit of doing, is to start watching the position of the sun on the horizon when it's rising and setting. Okay, so let's see. If this, okay, so this is our west. This is to the west, this direction. That's to the east. So if you're looking at the, at the sun setting, let's say, over the city of Atlanta, what you'll notice is that on spring equinox, it sets due west. Like, um, so any street that's, that's oriented east-west, the sun will be setting. You probably notice sometimes around equinox when you're driving, you suddenly discover that the sun is straight in your face, right? Usually that's because you're going to be driving on an east-west street. Okay, now watch the sun, and through the course of the next three months, what you're going to do, if you're looking at spring equinox, what's happening is the sun is migrating along that horizon towards the north. And then it reaches its standstill position, its solstice position, when it, it, it far north as it's going to get. It stands there for a few days, right? It hesitates right there. And then it starts coming back again. Then you'll get to fall equinox. It's going to be standing due east, due west again at, at sunset. Reverse all of this for sunrise. And then it's going to continue to migrate, and it's going to get down there about 80-some degrees south. It's going to be way standing down there in the south come uh, winter solstice, right? And those are going to be the shortest days of the year because the sun now is low. It, 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 it rises and sets far to the south, and then it's low in the sky because of the tilt of the Earth's axis. Now, that tilt was oftentimes a major part of laying out the pattern, the template on the ground that these builders would employ in order to lay out the ground plans of their temples. So now, notice here, you have a circle divided into how many equal parts? Eight parts. So therefore you have the eightfold division of a circle and the means to create an octagon. Let's put another diagonal in. Now, what I've done here is the beginning of a whole interesting sequence of geometric progression. Picture this. I take, once I have my square, I take the diagonal, right? And I swing that diagonal down and I project the base of my square out until it meets the arc. You picture what I'm talking about there? And I do that on both sides. So what I've done is I've taken the diagonal of the square and I've projected it on the base and on the top of the square. And then I'm creating a rectangle. 
Now, I might mention that if you think of a square, and we always make these as simple as possible, a square is one unit by one unit, let's say, right? Hopefully you all remember the Pythagorean theorem, right? There's going to be a short quiz afterwards, so I will be testing you on this. Um, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. The sides of any right, the, the two sides of any right angle triangle squared equals the uh, square drawn on the hypotenuse, right? So you square the two sides, you add them together, you get the square of the hypotenuse, and then you get the square root of that, and it gives you the length of the other side. And here's an interesting and very simple mathematical exercise for you. If you have a, 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 a triangle, a square, whose two sides are one unit, let's go back to this guy right there, okay? One and one. Look at this right triangle right here, right? One and one. So one squared is one times one, which is one. One and one is two, right? So now we're not looking for two because two would be a square drawn on that hypotenuse. What we want is that side length. So we take the square root of two. And the square root of two, interestingly, is another one of those irrational numbers. 1.14159267 dot 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 dot. I forgot the rest. I one time at one time had it memorized out to 7,642 places, but no, I'm not really. I had it. I had it memorized. I think just seven places. Look, I've got to save some of that space up there for important stuff. I figure, for practical purposes, any one of these numbers that I'm about to show you, round off to the three points. That means, like, the square root is three. 1.732. The next number in the sequence happens to be zero. So if you go 7.132, or 7 point, yeah, 132, and the next number is zero, you've got tenths in the first place, hundreds, thousands in the third, ten thousands. So for most work that we would do on the human scale, we don't need to go beyond one part in 1,000 of accuracy, right? In fact, most of the time, one part in 100 is going to be enough, right? For real exacting work, you might be getting up there to those kind of like machine-level precisions, but obviously for a work of art or craft, building a house or building a temple or creating a painting or whatever, that level of precision is not necessary. Well, what we've done is we've created what I call a root two rectangle. And the reason is, if we always, always in these, we'll keep the short side unity, one, right? Long side is now square root of two. So you know that the long side of this rectangle has the property that its length is the same as the diagonal of the original square. Now, if I take that rectangle, and I put two diagonals in it, I can do something else, which is very interesting. Let's look what I did. I took, I don't know why this is so big on the screen, but I put in a diagonal in the root two rectangle. Now let's, before I go forward, let's think about this. This is one, this is the square root of two, right? One squared, still one, we don't need to think about that anymore. Square root of two squared is just two, right? So we add two to one and we get three. What that means is this diagonal is the square root of 3, 1.732, dot, dot, dot. So we found it, it showed up in a second way, see? We, we, we showed that it, it's the relationship of the length to the width of that vesica, right? So it's, it's a very important number that shows up in a lot of different ways, right? Now we take and we discover it's the diagonal length of the root 2 rectangle. If I put another diagonal in there, let's see where we can go with this now. What I'm doing here 
is I am erecting a perpendicular to that diagonal. Now, I haven't shown you this, but there's three very simple techniques for erecting perpendicular lines using this thing here, right? And basically perpendicular lines, you're talking about this, and then you're talking about 90 degrees, right? I could actually, I think, pull up another one and show you um, this right here. I will segue off to the side for a second. Because this is this is gonna tie right back into what I'm talking about. And you can really begin to see the whole sequence here. There we're back to our line. Now oftentimes when you've got a line and you're gonna build something on that line, you're gonna want the, the, the key points of the lines typically are the two endpoints of the center. Now once you know what the golden section is and divine proportion, that becomes a very significant point of dividing that line, but also the square root of two and the square root of three give you important points, which you'll understand shortly. Um, but I'm just starting with one point at the end of that line, and then I'm almost at random, but not quite at random, I'm gonna drop a second point. And you'll see that this, this is an exercise because what I'm doing is, you've got a picture, this can be done on, the, on a site. That you're trying to lay out a, a temple, right? And you need to set out these two right angles. You need to create a right angle, so you need the perpendicular line. This is not going to work if I put this dot down here or out there or up here. It needs to be somewhere around the middle or a third and, you know, not too far up. Because what you're going to do is, once you set that random dot there, you're going to use this as the radius of a circle that you're about to draw. So that you connect those, the two points define the radius of a circle. The intersection of the circle with the line generates a third point. Remember what I said, each step in the process creates the potentiality for the next step. So I'm using this as a center, and I'm using this now as a radius, and I'm going to draw a circle. And as soon as I've done that, I've given myself another point to work on. You see that? I connect that. Now, because all radii of the same circle are equal, which is really the first, uh, the, the first uh, axiom of, or the first proposition of Euclidean geometry, you know that these two are equal. Whatever, whatever the length, they're equal to each other, aren't they? Now, I'm now going to use this, and I'm going to do a projection. So I take my straight edge, and I would do a projection out like this to get another point on the circle. So I get that. Now that's the magic point we're looking for. Because once I connect that back with my original point, guess what I have? A right angle. Now, once I've got the right angle, I, I, I don't need all of this. That's the, what I've done up to this point is just like scaffolding on a building project. It's something that's there temporarily, and then when you're done with it, you take it away. It's not part of the final building. So here I'm showing just that to get the, 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 the technique to work, I don't even need the whole circle, do I? I just need to get this point and that point up there. In fact, I don't even need that much. All I need is just that and that. But I know that when I'm doing that, that circle is there, right? And that's why this works. So now I've got a right angle. And I have taken this. I could lay out, I'm going to lay out a square on this. Now what I could do is I could, I, once I have the right angle, I can lay out that square any size I want, any convenient size, right? I could lay out and mark off a square this big, this big, this big, doesn't matter. Since this is here, I'm going to use that, right? And I've created a mark, and you know I've got an equal mark up there. 
So this distance here is equal. I use those two as centers. Here to here. And I open my compass to that. And I swing an arc up here and an arc here. So what I then end up with is that. And there's my square. And we'll clean it up. We'll put in the diagonals. And there's the simple math. There's the square root of 2, 1.4, If you're using this, for most people in an artistic application, 1.4 is going to be close enough. Right? If you're laying out a canvas and you're using this proportion, because really in, in art, a lot of times you don't, the idea is not to stick slavishly to the numbers. Right? You use the numbers kind of as guidelines to get an overall composition. Um, but let's go for this. Now there's there's our square, the the uh, point in the middle that we've gotten. If I project the point from that middle to the to the center of the uh, side of the square, I can now begin to do a series of nested squares. You see what I've got there? I've got a square inside the circle and a square outside the circle. Now notice that the square here, this square, I mean this circle has the same diameter as the side of the square. This square here is side length much smaller. What is that ratio between the two? Well, it's the square root of two. And we can do a whole series of nested circles. So you've got this circle, whatever this is, this circle, you're going to take this radius. If you multiply it times the square root of two, you get this radius. Now, you can obviously draw this without actually even knowing the numbers, right? You don't need to know the numbers, but it helps. As you get into this and start using the system, you'll see that it really does help. And you can begin to project lines, and those lines will give you points to give you further um, generations of the pattern. So here's a simple square. We're calling the side length 1. We've got A, B, C, D. We're naming the corners. Put in the diagonal, this is going to be old, old stuff to you now. There's 1.4, the, the square root of 2. We projected it down. We're going to create the root 2 rectangle. We do both operations to get that. And then from there we get the root 2 rectangle. And we can put in there the diagonal. With that diagonal, we can do some interesting things. And it's probably going to... We'll just keep going here so you can see what we're doing. Okay, here's what I've done. I'm going to erect a perpendicular to the diagonal. And this is how I'm doing it. You see this point right here? I've established this point because F is the same distance from A as B. So I'm not just arbitrarily imposing points. I'm using things that are already there. I then use A and F as centers, right? F is a center, and I swing this arc. A is the center, and I swing this arc, which gives me the point R, and the point R gives me that line, which bisects the base of the root 2 rectangle, gives me a right angle there, and what's interesting about this, as you'll see here, is I've created the first really pattern of dynamic symmetry. So, I've created a triangle there, right? That triangle has the same shape as that triangle. It's exactly the same shape. That triangle. That triangle. That triangle. That triangle. They're all similar. They all have the same sides 
the same. In other words, if one is to this, it is that is to the next. So you end up with a series of harmonic triangles where there's a consistency, a constant proportionality to these things. And this is defined by the square root of two. So now, when you have that perpendicular, what's interesting is it, it bisects the base of your rectangle, right? And if you use that, you can get a harmonic world out of this, where each progression in the thing is defined by the root 2. So each one of these grows by the root 2 as it comes around like this. And this can begin to show you some of the symmetries that begin to appear in this particular rectangle. Now, when we take these crossing points right here, now notice, when you do these spirals, they never actually ever reach those points. You see, that's kind of like Zeno's paradox. It just will get closer and closer and closer, but will never actually get there, right? But nonetheless, these are dynamic points within this frame. So, when I abstract it, and I've just got the four points, what's interesting about those is that you connect them, that rectangle exactly recapitulates the proportions of the original. And then we can put this in here, and what we're seeing is this particular line is creating two rectangles out of the original one. And both of those two rectangles are root two rectangles. So whatever the properties are you started with on the first one, they are carried over into these this second generation here. Now I use the points again that are already there, like this, and I've created four rectangles. And they're all root two rectangles. So again, whatever pro properties are inherent in the original one, it's being carried over in each generation of this particular drawing. So each of these is a root two rectangle, just like the one I started with. So those properties are carried over. And if I begin to enter in more diagonals, and again, using the points that are already there, I can begin to subdivide. This, this initial bifurcation can subdivide infinitely. In other words, you can begin to take this template to whatever degree of precision you, you like. See, I can keep adding lines in here, and no, at nowhere do I lose the original harmonic proportion of root 2. Now we get back to that, and we've already been through this, so we won't elaborate, we won't dwell on this. Square root of one is the square root of one. Square root of two, remember I took the diagonal of the root two rectangle. We discovered that it was the square root of three. Now, if I do the same process again with the root three rectangle, project the base, project the top, I'm going to create a root three rectangle, and there it is. Now you understand this, this is my exercise for erecting a perpendicular. So I get my perpendicular, and that perpendicular hits the base of my root 3 rectangle right there. What's special about that point? Well, once again, we're getting this harmonic series of triangles. But what, what's interesting here is it divides the base exactly into one-third. So if I get it from the other side, I get three rectangles, and what are the proportions of those rectangles? Well, I'll three rectangles. Just exactly the proportions of the one I started with. So again, here's the harmonic geometry. 
and you can begin to see it's just a matter of entering diagonals and then using the points of crossing to generate more points and then you can proceed to develop a template and that's what they did basically they developed a template um, and the template could be carried to whatever level of precision one preferred and that's just to kind of demonstrate that there's this this the symmetry, the symmetry of the, and just very simple, just there are patterns within the patterns that you can see that, and all these are very simple, but they could all be um, generated out of this new tree geometry. And then by just adding additional circles, you can create things the well-known flower of life. Etc. Um, and then this is the root two spacing ratio. This is where you stay consistently with uh, a series of expanding nested circles and squares where the constant of proportionality is the square root of two. And one of the places we find in nature, which to me is very fascinating, where we find nested root two circles is in the great multi ring impact structures. Who would have thought? But in fact, to astronomers who are looking at circular features on the moon and other planets and things that are trying to determine is this a large impact or is this volcanic? Because volcanoes <coughs> don't do this, only impacts. Because what it does is it liquefies the surface because the, the heat of the energy is so great, it liquefies the surface and the, the rings are moving outward in molten rock, which then crystallizes, cools down as it's moving out, and then it crystallizes into rings that have the root two spacing ratio. And here's again Mare Oriental on the on the moon. Exactly displaced the square root two. Um, so let's see what's going to happen here. You'll, at this point now, know that these two circles are related because whatever the radius of this circle, multiply by the square root of two, and you get the radius of that circle. And we know now that the square root of two is roughly 1.4, right? If you're using a calculator, I would just go 1.4142. Or I'll just hit two and square root it, and then it'll give it to you. I don't know how many places out, 30 or 40 places or something. Now, we're going to go through an interesting sequence here to show you what I call the master metrological diagram. Because in the ancient world, the unit of measure that one started with was always critically important. It was referred, we could use the term modulus, the modulus of the plane, right? And this could apply to any composed work, right? The modulus. You start with some. Some unit, that, some basic fundamental unit that the whole thing is built upon. In sacred architecture, that unit was almost invariably derived from the earth and generally derived from its geographic position on the earth, right? And it would usually be some function of the earth's radii, right? And I, that's, it would be beyond what we're going to be able to talk about tonight, but in the classes that I would do regularly in the old days, we got into that in... in, in uh, great detail how um, how those principles will work and how they could potentially be uh, reused again today. Um, but now notice what I'm doing here. Check this out. Here's the square, right? Here's its diagonal. That diagonal gives you this circle. That circle then gives you the, this root 2 rectangle, right? Can you see it? Now we take the diagonal of the root 2 rectangle, and what do you think we're going to do with that? Well, we draw another circle. And that circle, then from that circle, we can generate the points to get that square. And then look what happens. We have this point. 
So we've got a center and we've got that point, and I can connect those points. So what I have now, think of this. This is our initial U, right? We're calling it one. But you know that one is the square root of itself, right? So we're going to call this root one. This becomes root two. This becomes root three. What do you think this one becomes? You think you guess. Root one, root two, root three, root four. Yes. Root four. By the same simple Pythagorean theorem, right? One squared plus the square root of three squared. Square root of three times square root of three is three. Three plus one is four. There you go. Now you've got a length that's double the, the length you started with. Now notice we've, we've sort of returned back to rationality because square root of two, square root of three are these weird numbers that go on forever, but now we get back square root of four is just two. So now what we've got is the potential to create a double square. So I'm going to do that. Boom. So I know it's getting hard to make, but here's our initial square. Here's the second square now that's going to be the same size as the first one. So we now have here a double square. Think about this. Double square. One, four. What do you think the diagonal is going to be? Square root of five, isn't it? Right? So we've got square root of one, square root of two, square root of three, square root of four, square root of five. Now square root of five is valuable and important because here was another one of the geometric secrets. The square root of five was how you got to the golden section. How many of you have heard of the golden section, or the divine proportion, um, other names, right? Who knows what it is? Who can actually tell me what is the divine proportion? And how dare you live on this earth as a human being, the walking embodiment of the divine proportion, and you don't know what it is? The first two, the sum of the first two is the sum, so... Like one, uh, one and one is two, two is three, three is five, five is eight. What's your name? Rusty is talking about the Fibonacci sequence, <clears throat> which is where you have a sequence of numbers where each number, each value in that sequence is the sum of the two that came before it. So it goes zero, one, zero plus one is one, so one is the next number, one plus one is two, two plus one is three, three plus two is five, five plus three is eight. Mm -hmm. Right? 8 plus 5 is 13. 13 plus 8 is 21. 21 plus 13 is 34. 34 plus 21 is 55, etc., etc. Now, what's happening is you're getting a sequence there that is converges on a certain number as a limit, but it never actually gets there. It's one of those cases again. That limit is a divine proportion. And the bigger number, the bigger the numbers you use, to get your initial ratio, the closer you're going to get to whatever that value is, which is like 1.618033989, 1 dot, 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 right? Generally, you don't need to go that far. You can stop, a lot of people will use it and stop at 1.6. I like to get a little more precise than that because I use geometry and I can, even though, and here's what's interesting, even though numerically you cannot actually represent it with precision, geometrically you can, see? You can find that point. Think of it this way. Here's a line. Let's say I take this line, and I want to divide this line. If I divide it in the middle, then the two pieces I've got are exactly equal to each other. And that's a static situation. That's not dynamic, right? If I start moving the point at which I'm going to cut this off of the middle, then obviously the two sizes, the two lengths are going to be different, right? 
They could go very, one could be very long, one could be very short. They could be, you know, close to the same, but not quite the same. But there's only one point, right, to cut that, right, where the ratio of the small section is to the large section as the large section was to the whole original length, right? So picture this, picture an arc, an arc, and an arc. And there, that's the golden section. Now, how does that apply to a human? Well, typically in my classes, we will do a demonstration. We'll do a little statistical analysis, right? If you stand somebody up, uh, can I have a volunteer, Cameron? Oh, Cameron, don't, you know, you're, you're a lot prettier than you think you are, Cameron. I mean, doesn't everybody agree that Cameron's really quite pretty? Okay. Well, if we take any person, right, take their height, now let's go to that asymmetrical division again, right? And if I were to, if I were to actually find that golden section point of this particular length, and there's only one point where it works, and I were to now expand it to a fluid's height, that divine point right there would be her navel, the point of her generation as a human being. Now, when she was born, her navel was not in the golden section. It was halfway. See? Think about this. If you saw somebody walking down the street that had the proportions of a three-month-old infant, you would think they were strange looking. Likewise, if you saw an infant that had the proportions of a grown adult, you would think, they're strange looking, right? What happens is, as you grow, you grow into a whole series of golden section relationships. Hold out your arm, Philip. Now, if we take, here's another video piece. This is Philip's cubit, from her elbow to her fingertips, right? Cubit, and that's how it was defined, cubitis, Latin for, for elbow, actually, right? If I take this length here, and I divide it by the golden section. There's a space right here. You, you feel on your wrist right now. Feel on your wrist. You'll find a, a hollow space on your wrist called the space of desktop. Feel around and see if you can find a hollow place on your wrist. Is there anybody in here who does not have one? <laughs> because that's one of the diagnostic criteria for uh, identifying aliens. If you don't have that. <laughs> Um, okay, so guess what? There it is, the golden section relationship from the fingertip to that wrist joint space of desktop to her elbow, right? Also, if I were to take a rectangle, short side one, the long side, 1.618, the golden section, that would be a rectangle that would frame the face. And then I could begin dividing that and I would get the positions of all the features. I could go. Thank you. Normally, for that demonstration, I have uh, the person take all their clothes off, but in this case, for the interest of time, I do. It's much more effective that way. Um, okay, now you see what I'm doing here. Look what's happening. I'm just going to keep this progression going. You can see root one, root two, root three, root four, root five. What do you think this square root is? Six. Now, again, root 5, root 6, they're irrational numbers. <coughs> root 2, root 3 are rational numbers. Root 4 is not. So right in the middle of this sequence, we get this sort of return to rationality, which I kind of find rather interesting. So here's all the root ratios. Uh, they're incommensurable in length, you see, other than the root 4, which is true. What do I mean by that? Well, 
It means that if you if you take a number, or you take some whole number, one foot, let's say, I use one foot, and I multiply it by the square root of two, well, I'm going to get 16.97 dot, 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 dot. Now, most builders in the field know this. They don't know that, but they do know that if they round it off to 17, that's going to be good enough for, for most work in the field. So you think of this, if you've got a, a, a square foot, side is going to be 12 inches, Think of its diagonal as 17 inches, and 17 to 12 is going to be very close to the root 2, but it's obviously not going to be precisely up, but it's close enough, right? Because we're human beings, and none of us are perfect. So here I put all those diagonals in in yellow. There they are. So you've got this whole series of harmonic relationships here. And just to see some of the symmetry that's in there, now, what's interesting about all of this is that from that, I call that the master pattern, the master diagram. Um, because from that was derived the ancient system of sacred metrology. It was the system used to build sacred structures all over the ancient world. Um, Mayamata said, if the measurement of the temple is in every way perfect, There will be perfection in the universe as well. Now, one, when you look at that, you think, what we're talking about here is the principle of reciprocity, meaning that what humans do, our actions can feed back into a higher scheme of things. Now, this is one of the animating concepts of the ancient world, was that our actions would resonate on levels far beyond the normal scale of human uh, influence. If the proper geometries were employed because you see the thing is is that we're dealing with this material world is simply patterns of intersecting frequencies and they vibrate at ratios that turn out to be the ratios we're looking at right here and this is where it becomes very significant and i'm going to speed through some of this um but some of the pro i've just gone not this is i'm not trying to, to, to indoctrinate anybody into christianity but there is a whole uh, shall we say, a, a substratum of Christian belief that most Christians today have no idea is even there. Um, there is a geometric basis to the Bible, just as there is to the Vedas, you know, just as there is to the Tao Te Ching, right? It's there in the sacred writings. There is a substratum of geometry. And that's something I say for advanced classes, but it, it really becomes the, the means of decoding a lot of these cryptic utterances that we've inherited from the ancient world. I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof, and what is the length thereof. Who is this guy? He's got a measuring line in his hand, and he's going to measure the holy city. In this case, you've got to understand that the holy city is a metaphor, essentially, for something else. It's, it's the universal template or plan for the temple. Think about the word template. Think about the word temple. Think about the word temporal, which means time, because the sacred edifices, the temples, were slices of time frozen into stone, frozen into wood momentarily, so you would capture a moment of time. It could be the solstice sunrise coming, right? That moment of time when you realize, yes, the, the light is coming back after three or four days or five days of darkness. The light that's coming back. 
But it went much further than that because I believe what the, un the ancient peoples understood was we live on a thin veneer. We've created our cultures on this thin veneer above which and below which are just inconceivably powerful, tremendous forces. And only as long as those forces stay in this delicate balance can this all endure. You could begin to shift the parameters ever so slightly and the whole the whole confluence of things that makes all this possible would get out of phase and it would disappear. And just think of this. If you create uh, Earth with too much more mass, what happens? We would have never evolved beyond slugs, right? If you have too little mass, everything flies into space. If you're too close to the sun, you burn up. If you're too far away, it would be perpetual ice. So it's a very narrow range that makes all of this possible. And see, I think the ancient people understood that. And they understood that forces, I mean, think about what's been going on in the last few months. We've had four volcanoes erupting, right? How, how many of those Kilauea has been erupting, the big eruption in Guatemala? See, these things, most people just look at these and think they're just arbitrarily random. They're not. They're not. You see, there are patterns unfolding in time. And the way to understand those patterns is to understand that those patterns are governed by the same numbers that we find inherent in this geometry. See, the great year of the world was a model. It was a model of taking our small annual trip around the sun and projecting it to the next level and understanding that on that level were the events that happened that allowed whole ecosystems to rise and thrive and perish or to suddenly become extinct or for cities and cultures and civilizations to rise and suddenly become extinct, you see? And that has happened. See, that's the legacy. This is what, like, the work of Graham Hancock is so vitally important right now, because what he's doing is he's documenting and showing that, yes, the history of our species on this planet is much deeper, richer, and more complex than anybody had even imagined. And it's very likely that there have been whole worlds that have preceded the one we're doing right now, the one that we're creating right now, that have disappeared. And this is an idea that is not favored by a lot of, uh, shall we say, mainstream scholars and mainstream scientists. And, and most of them who, who uh, are dismissive of that idea have never actually looked. How many of you guys actually, did anybody here catch the, the, the debate I did on the Joe Rogan show? Several of you. You can find that online. It's worth going. The, the editor of, and publisher of Skeptic Magazine challenged myself and Graham Hancock to a debate. It's been one of the most listened to debates probably ever, literally. I'm not trying to toot my horn, but right, I mean, it's up in the millions. Probably no debate to eight to 10 million. So, I mean, it's probably one of the most listened to debates ever in history, right? I mean, when you think of it that way. But anyways, it's worth listening to because the skeptic didn't fare too well. I'm pleased to say. I'm pleased to report. <laughs> At least this was more or less the consensus. What? I concur. He concurs, and he oh, heard man. it. He concurs. He was exposed. Well, you see, but he represents. See, the thing about him, he's a figurehead. He represents a whole realm of academia that basically wants to suppress certain ideas. And and why that is would be a whole topic of another discussion. But that some of the ideas being proposed here are very politically incorrect right now for a number of reasons, which I won't get into here tonight, because we're running out of time. From the book of Revelation, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod. This is the rod, right? 
And typically they would use straight reads and oftentimes they would be marked. And you would use that. If I set this up on the horizon and somebody else has a sighting pole, typically with a circle with a cross in it, there's picture that, the circle with the cross. You sight through that. And then somebody else with a sighting rod, would, what I would do is I would look through and I would line this crosshair up with a star rising on the horizon. And the second figure would then have a second pole and rise, and I would indicate to where he stops. So now I have an alignment to that particular point on the horizon. Um, and that was typically the universal method that was used. So uh, the angel, first, you notice in the last uh, one it was a man, now it's an angel. The angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Why? Because then what you'll find out is that the temple, the altar, and the worshipers in it all have a common, a constant of proportionality that links them together. But then it goes beyond that, and the temple itself now has a geometrical relationship with the earth itself. And that geometrical relationship is derived from where on the earth it's put. Because the earth is not a perfect sphere, it's an oblate spheroid. So that means that if you move from the equator to the North Pole, the latitude of the earth is shrinking. In fact, if you go from the equator and you were to travel to the North Pole, you would actually be 13 miles closer to the Earth's center of gravity at the North Pole or the South Pole than you would at the equator. See, this factor was, was incorporated into their modulus that was used to build their temples. And again, this is advanced stuff, so beyond what we can talk about tonight. But it's a, it's a, it's a very robust idea that they did this. Because we can find temples and buildings all over the place where if you analyze them according to where they are positioned on the earth, you can then reverse engineer it back to what the original module was. Which suggests that you know people in the distant past knew how to measure the earth. But that's the one thing right there carries pretty significant implications. Why, why would hunter-gatherers be interested in, in, in measuring the size of the earth? Or even the shape of the earth? Because you see, the thing is, is to know the difference in the modulus as it changes, depending on where you are latitudinally, that means you understand the shape of the Earth. Now that's pretty sophisticated stuff, you know, that uh, hunter-gatherers weren't supposed to know that, were they? So now we'll go into a brief thing on uh, historic metrology, and then we're going to wrap it up as soon as you can get all of this in your brain. I'm going back to one of the original units, one of those modules that was used by the ancient Egyptians. It was called the Riemann. An Egyptian unit of linear measurement analyzed by F.H. Griffin in 1892, by William Flinders Petrie and A.E. Behrman, considered to be equal to 20 digits or 14.58 inches. A.E. Behrman in his historical metrology defined the length of the Riemann to 1.2165. You don't need to remember those numbers. I just want you to remember the relationships. The Royal Cubit, okay, the Royal Cubit was the, the, the used to build many of the temples, including presumably the Pyramid of, of Cheops um, on the Giza Plateau, and it was. 1.72 or 20.625. Well, here's what's interesting. If you take these two, the Riemann, 14.58, and the Royal Cubit, the Royal Cubit is the square root of 2 times the Riemann. So if you drew one square Riemann on the ground and drew its diagonal, that was the Royal Cubit. See? Then there was a Palestinian Cubit that showed up a couple of thousand years later, which was the Cubit in a hand's breadth of Ezekiel, this was the this was the, the ground plan of the, the sacred the, the, the Jewish temple, right? Conforms to the cubit of the altar is made in Ezekiel 43:13. That is the cubit and a handbreadth. The Palestinian cubit is generally taken as 25.284 or 2.17 feet. Well, 
Now, we're talking about being used in the Palestine area. We're talking about between uh, roughly uh, 0 um, BC and 1000 BC, right? Now, if you take the Riemann and you multiply it by the square root of 3, what do you get? You get the Palestinian cubic. So now you've got Riemann, royal cubic, Palestinian cubic following this progression. Um, then we go to the Roman pace. Uh, which, or, which they used to lay out their cities and their temples and so on. The Roman pace, you know how the pace was. If you, if you uh, generally will count every other footstep is a, is a pace, right? Because if you're pacing off something, you don't want to count every step. Make it easier. Count every time, say, your right foot hits the ground, right? Well, in all of the ancient concepts, a thousand paces, what's the Latin word for pace? I mean, what's the Latin word for a thousand? Mill, meal, right, right? Where we get our word mile. Mile was based upon 1,000 human paces. Uh, in this case, this was the Romans. So if you look at their double pace was 4.86, so they, they, they standardized that. The half pace was 2.43, right? So this is what, you know, you've heard that all roads lead to Rome, right? And because they had the, they had the pillar at the center of the city and everything was marked out from that vertical line, right? So you've got the Roman pace. Well, do you think that has any relation to the Riemann? It certainly does. It's double the Riemann. So now we've got the square root of 1, square root of 2, square root of 2, square root of 4. In, in Egyptian and Palestinian, now Roman measurements. And then Alexander Thom, who, as it says here, in the 1960s and 1970s, surveyed and analyzed over 500 megalithic remains in stone circles throughout the British Isles. The megalithic yard was determined by Thom to be equal to 2.72 feet. Well, Guess what? Here we go. Here is the sequence. Megalithic yard is the Riemann times the square root of 5. So there, as these ancient Britons, 4,000, 5,000 years ago, are laying out all these stand, standing stone circles, they're using a, a unit of measurement that is harmonically related to what the Egyptians were building with. You see? Coincidence? And then, of course, Riemann times 6 is almost our modern yard of 2 feet. It's a little bit off. But So what that means then, is when you go back to this diagram, all of those measurements are all unified by this diagram. Now, this is just the, 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 the this is just the, the, the um, you know the outer surface of this whole system. There are others in here. I've got you know Sumerian feet, Assyrian feet. Um, there's others. You see what I'm showing here, and again we're just blasting through this quickly, is that I'm presenting evidence that the ancient world had a unified system of neutrology. And it's a unified system of metrology we use consistently to construct sacred structures, to, to build um, to build the temples and to build cathedrals, whatever the case may be, to put up standing stone circles. See, now, if this is true, and it gets hard to, to dismiss this as coincidence, in my opinion, if there is a unified system of metrology based upon this harmonic geometry, where did it come from? And how is it that all these ancient cultures around the world, and we didn't even get into the Mayan stuff, we could get into that, and you see what they were doing was part of the same system. Where'd it come from? Did, was, it, did it, was it diffused from some center? Did everybody come up with it independently? See, it raises a mystery about our own, our own evolution as a culture. 15 minutes? So, now here's where it also gets interesting. Because we're talking about lengths that are incommensurable, right? Square root of 2, square root of 3, square root of 4. None of these, if you set them up as ratios, that is as fractions, 
you can have a whole number in one of the in either numerator or denominator, but not the other one, right? Meaning they're irrational. However, if you go from lengths to areas, they suddenly become perfectly commensurable. So, in other words, one square royal cubit was equal to two square remus. Now, I might mention that the ultimate, the human association with this was right here. Upper arm was the remus, and the forearm was the cubit. Right, so now from now on, whenever you see anybody saluting, let that remind you, Riemann and Royal Cubic, and this is the diagonal of the square whose side is your upper one. Okay. One square Palestinian cubit is equal to three Egyptian square units, perfectly. One square Roman paste equal to four square Egyptian cubit. Now, so one megalithic yard equal to five perfectly expressed by commensurable whole numbers. And one virtual modern yard is equal to six square remus. So the idea here is that you could actually integrate these numbers on the, on the when you think about this, you're moving up from one dimension, and you're moving up a dimension, you see, from length to area. Now, what really gets interesting is you move the next dimension from area to volume. But that's beyond what we can do tonight because I think we're getting close to the end here. Um, yes? How about we show how this has percolated up through different uh, specific architectures and artwork? Okay, well, we can just do some quick examples here. Um, let's see what we got here. Um, one of the most prominent ways in recent history was in the Great Cathedral Building era of of the Middle Ages. How many of you have ever been to Europe and been to some of the great cathedrals? Yeah, then you know what I'm talking about. This is Amiens, this is one. We'll go through these really quick. All of this is geometry, and I can show you if we had more time how they use the system that we're actually been talking about here. The square gave, in the root two relationship, gave a rise to a system called ad quadratum, or of the square. Um, the the uh, root three, which was related to the equilateral triangle, gave the ad triangulum system, which was based upon the equilateral triangle. This particular vault um, is actually based upon pentagonal geometry. Um, Chartres Cathedral. If there's any uh, one cathedral that is just saturated with symbolism, it's this one. And uh, some of that symbolism is pretty powerful stuff. Um, it has been called the Golden Book of the West. Here is the ground plan of that cathedral. Now check this out. You see the length-width ratio is not arbitrary. Length, width, it's the best offender root three, which of course makes great symbolic sense because this was dedicated to the Virgin, right? The ultimate woman who's about to give birth to a god. And of course this is not exclusively limited to the Christian tradition, because we find it repeated over and over and over again universally. Um, but there it is. And again, this is no accident. And here's St. Mary's Chapel. Again, St. Mary's Chapel of Glastonbury. Now, what's the significance of Glastonbury? Well, because Glastonbury, for a time, is considered to be the repository and hiding place of the Holy Grail. How many of you have heard the story of the Holy Grail? How many of you have seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Okay, well, we should watch that as a class project. Sometime. Point out. See, actually, there was some interesting esoterica hidden in there. 
those guys were pretty well learned some things. But but actually, you know, um, the movie by, um, what was his name? Um, in 1980, I believe, Excalibur, is the telling of Thomas Mallory's version of the, the Grail legends. John Borman. Borman, yeah, thank you, John Borman. Right. Um, so anyway, not to get off on that sidetrack, here's St. Mary's Chapel. There's an interesting story behind this. Uh, during the early 20th century, the Church of England hired an architect by the name of Bly Bond to excavate the ruins of, of, of the grounds here around this chapel, which used to be part of Glastonbury Abbey. And he was looking for a particular extension of the main abbey called, that I think now is called Edwards Abbey, and he couldn't find it. And he met up with this guy named William Simcox Lee, who was a reverend who also did automatic writing. So unbeknownst to the ecclesiastical authorities that had hired them, they engaged in an exercise of uh, automatic writing with, with Simcox Lee being, you know, going into a trance, writing this. And what they claim happened was that one of the medieval monks came through and started telling him where to dig. Well, whether the story is true or not, the fact is that they did go dig. And oh, oh, the writings actually exist, right? They do exist, right? Where they were told to go and dig, they went and dug there, Bly Bond dug there, and lo and behold, he found this chapel. Somehow, I don't remember the details of the story, but somehow the authorities found out about it, and when they did, he was let go. There were other reasons as well, and it had to do with the symbolic significance of this thing that was turned out to be very politically incorrect in the day. And again, that's something that I get into in, in other classes. But here is the ground plan of St. Mary's Chapel. It's 68.6 uh, divided by 39.6. Try the math on that, pull your calculators out, do the math and discover that's a root three rectangle. Then we have the Palazzo Farnese in Rome. It's based upon the root two relationships. And I'm gonna go through this quick. Um, Stonehenge, um, let's see here. Yeah, there's the ground plan of Stonehenge. Here's all the numbers. You know, it's almost like a whole class just to analyze these particular numbers. Um, but I'll show you, it's like the Sarsen stone trilophons fit perfectly into golden rectangles. There's a whole geometry uh, template that was laid out on the ground to establish the, the, the um, the design of the temple, and it's all based upon harmonic geometry and the squaring of the, the solution of the squaring of the circle, which was considered to be like the, the ultimate um, problem of geometry, because there is no way to exactly square the circle. See, the idea was to get as close, as close, as close as possible, right? Because the square was considered to be emblematic of all things material, all things measurable, all things finite. The circle was considered to be uh, um, emblematic of all things immeasurable, the infinite, um, the irrational as opposed to the rational, right? So the squaring of the circle was reconciling these opposing tendencies symbolized by the square and the circle. And if you could do that, you would accomplish harmony. That was the idea. This is the perfect solution, almost perfect solution for the squaring of the circle, uh, built into the ground plan of Stonehenge. And here at the same scale, the St. Mary's Chapel superimposed upon that of Stonehenge and there's the root three rectangle. And I do this to show just one example of many, many, many that you could show that the same system of design and architecture was being used throughout the ages, which raises some very interesting questions about how was it perpetuated? Was it perpetuated in unbroken lineage? Was it lost and then rediscovered? I don't know. But in our own times, I suspect it's been lost. Uh, probably lost going into the early 20th century in various historical reasons, 
I could put forth for that. But I now think that we're in a phase where it's being rediscovered and that we can begin to take these principles. And I barely, barely, barely scratched the surface of, of the, the whole system because it gets, again, the whole astronomical level, it gets into the, the geomantic level and knowing and understanding the confluence of forces in the, in the lithosphere. Because you have to understand that, that this planet is constantly pulsing. You know that there's tides, right? The lunar tides, right? Well, there's also tides in the solid lithosphere of the Earth itself. And those tides are predominantly lunar, but they're also solar, and they're also planetary, which also has, can have very small effects that only at the right times can be significant. See, Now, there is, when you get into this geometric model that I've been kind of laying out the, the parameters here for, you discover that these temple complexes are essentially based upon this, this, this template, this model. And as long as it was organized around this particular template, then it would be in harmony not only with the human scale, but with the planetary scale, and presumably beyond the planetary scale into that of the, like the whole solar system. And one of the things that I like to show is that when you lay out a template of the holy city, or the new Jerusalem, as it's been described in the book of Revelation and other places, what you actually end up with is a model of the solar system. This is the, this is the Parthenon enclosed perfectly in a golden rectangle. Parthenon is a really good example of one of those buildings that was built with a module whose uh, unit was precisely derived from where it is located uh, as a latitude on the Earth. And then we're just putting in some of the compositional lines. The Pantheon was all based on root 2 geometry, ad quadratum. Um, the Triumphal Arch of Constantine, again, another example of root 2 geometry. Um, and then some, uh, here's... Uh, the, the uh, eight cathedrals that formed the uh, cathedrals dedicated to Virgin, which is interesting because when you extrapolate them, they form a very close representation of the constellation of Virgo on the ground, just as many of the uh, temples in Cambodia seem to capitulate the, uh, the pattern of Draco. We see Pleiades uh, in Ballast, we see Orion. This could go on and on. So what we're seeing this is, this is an expression of the ultimate alchemy, alchemical dictum is as above, so below. It's because the idea here is they were creating, recreating the heavens above on the earth below. And the idea was to establish resonance, you see, because there's a whole science, and this is the science that's concealed within the stories of the Holy Grail. Because what, remember what's in the story of the Holy Grail? The, the knights set out in the quest, right? What has happened? King Arthur has become ill, debilitated. He can't get out of bed, can he, right? Meanwhile, the whole kingdom has, has dissolved into a wasteland. What had been a fertile, a feckin', you know, uh, proliferating kingdom there, it, it, it becomes dark. The crops die in the field. Babies are stillborn. People get sick. It turned into a wasteland. The, what, and what, so what did the knights do? They set out on a quest to find the Holy Grail. Now, whether it was King Arthur or Anfortas or the Fisher King or whoever this king was who was debilitated, his, his restoration to, to health was affected by the finding of the Holy Grail and, and drinking from the Holy Grail. Well, the Holy Grail, I suspect, for good reason, is actually a symbol of a lost technology whereby the fertility and fecundity of the land can be restored in the wake of a catastrophe. If you go and you, for example, one of the things I'm writing right now is on the, what happened in the year 1860, the year without a summer. 
which is a good analog for some of the ancient catastrophes that have engulfed the planet, right? What happened in 1815? Tambora down in Indonesia erupted. Uh, biggest eruption in modern times. And it blanketed the, the, the earth with dust and ash and sulfate aerosols. One of the consequences of that is the year 1816 was considered the year without a summer. And so like the northern United States, you had snowfall all summer. Not, not consistently, but at least three times in the northern United States, you had snowfall in the summer. And in Europe, same thing. And you had um, crops dying in the fields. And you had people getting hungry. And when people get hungry, their immune systems become compromised. And when that happens, uh, opportunistic diseases can take over, infectious diseases. And that's what, exactly what we see happen. And so the earth went through, really got assaulted roughly you know, in 1860, 202 years ago. Right, eventually that cleared out. But what's interesting about that is, is the effects of a large volcanic eruption would be very, very similar to the effects of a bolide impact of something from space. What, what is now becoming more and more apparent, and again, I can't get into the evidence for this tonight, but is that there's actually a tempo and a rhythm to the delivery of material into near-Earth space. Oh, right here, thanks. And I do, I have a... Um, a DVD here, right here, that gets into that Blu-ray. Blue, thank you, Blu-ray that really gets into that. You can tell I'm still stuck in about ten years ago. Um, yeah, I get into that in great detail. So if that's something that interests you, and how the patterns and tempos that we find associated with sacred geometry actually spill over and influence the tempos of global change, and that in turn affects uh, the stability, the rise and fall of human civilizations. So it's it's juicy stuff. No. Oh. I can have this? Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm in it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. Well, I, you know, I guess that's probably as good a place as any to stop. Okay, so there's Draco over Anchor Tom Complex. Um, okay, Shiloh Mound Complex, um, which is up in Tennessee. There's the layout of it, and it's capitulated by the Pleiades. Um, what else? Uh, I guess that's it for that particular show. Um, this gets us into a whole other discussion. Very interesting, of course. The Sphinx is one of those um, uh, mythic creatures that provides a symbolic key to understanding the whole sacred geometry of time because the Sphinx is composed of four creatures, right? Here it's the lion and the man, which of course is Leo and Aquarius, which is that particular axis. And if we take that axis and we go from uh, where we are now to halfway through the cycle, which was 12,900 years ago, we discovered that something very, very, very significant happened there. And it altered the whole trajectory of, of planetary evolution. In fact, it was probably the most significant event to have occurred on this planet in the last three to five million years. And it totally set up the, the parameters out of which modern civilization has emerged. And if we want to understand our modern civilization and how we might perpetuate it so that it might endure, and how we might learn to live in harmony with this planet, we could look back to those days and learn from the lessons of our ancestors, because they went to great lengths to perpetuate some of this knowledge to the future. And I think that is, is because they knew that in the tempo of cosmic change, there would come a time again when the human species once again had to address some of these larger issues, something more important than some of the stuff that people are consumed with today, right? That, that occupies so much attention, people's attention. So um, that's what I'm trying to do. I've spent 40 years or more than that, 45 years collecting this information together.
traveling to various places, learning from various learned people, studying a lot of stuff to put this knowledge together, and um, I have it. So, given the, the nature of time and the way it changes, it's, I feel like now it's time to put as much of this information out. Not that I have the final word on anything or that, that I have it all figured out. I certainly don't. But I've done a lot of homework, and I can save a lot of other people who might be on their own personal quest for the Holy Grail a lot of time. Because I've already done a lot of the legwork. So I guess we'll end there, right? Hey, I forgot to use this. Uh, this is what makes it all worthwhile. Did I do okay? You did fantastic. Oh. Thank you all for coming. We have Scott Houston. It's going to take you all deeper.